0: Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping, and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I'm going to talk about what's been going on at my homestead in the last couple of weeks. Um, I had planned on discussing all things honey, so I have been reading about how honeybees make honey, a little bit about the history of our experience keeping bees for honey production, and then also the process of harvesting and um, different options for selling honey. So I like creamed honey, for instance, or whipped honey. Um, Those are some of my favourites. And also a little bit about the different varieties of honey and how you need to time your harvest carefully to make the most of like a single floral source. So I have all that but when I was going and typing up my notes with updates about what's been going on here, um, I realized that I had enough for the whole episode. So I broke things up. Um, so this week I'm going to give you a little update on what I've been doing here, what's been going on with my chickens and my bees and the homestead in general. Well, to be completely honest, the last two weeks have been a little bit rough for me. Um, I mean, the weather's cooled off and we've had our first frost of the season. So I did take a little time out to start preparing the gardens. Um, This was mainly, you know, a huge amount of leaf raking, some mowing, maybe my last. Uh, grass mowing of the year. And then also taking down pest traps that I had up. Um, I don't use pesticides on my property because I keep bees. And also because a lot of the pesticides that are approved for use in the US are very, very damaging to a number of different pollinator species and even some amphibians. So I just avoid the whole thing. Um, And this means that when I have a pest, like Japanese beetles that eat all of my rose bushes, I have to find a way to deal with them that isn't going to harm other insects. And this year, I experimented with setting up beetle traps, um, where you basically have a lure that you can buy. It's like a naturally scented product, and it hangs over a bag, and the the beetles get attracted to the lure, and then they kind of tumble down into the bag and they get stuck. Um, the bag is kind of shaped, it's like an hourglass shape and they can't climb back up. And it actually was quite effective. I noticed a reduction of them on my plants and those bags filled up super fast. So I went around and I removed those traps because, you know, it's past the time when they're still alive. The Japanese beetle adults are gone, although their larva is in the soil. So I'm kind of kicking myself because I did say that I would Get some carnivorous nematodes, or um, I think it's called milky spore, that I was going to spray on the lawn, which would kill the larva before they could um, emerge, but I forgot this past year. So, that is definitely on my list for next season. Um, I have not cut back certain plants like my mint, which is just rioting and I love that. Um, My roses, I haven't cut those back, and I actually have a couple of tomato plants that I haven't. Um, harvested yet. And because we've had some mild days, I'm going to let them last a little bit longer. And then for the tomato plants, I will be moving some of them into the basement. Um, if anyone follows my Instagram, you might see that I found some tomato, um, plants growing in my compost pile and I potted them and so they are still very very young they're nowhere close to producing fruit and those are the ones that I'll be moving in I have a pop-up greenhouse I'm going to put in my basement with some grow lights and I might experiment with growing those over the winter so some other stuff that I've been doing um, to get ready for winter is um, I cleaned out my big coop the red roof coop If you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen some pictures of this. Um, Basically, I use something called the deep litter method in my large coop. And the idea is that you don't continually remove dirtied litter and replace it with fresh. Instead, you leave the litter in and you just add fresh on top and then turn it over time. And what you want to happen is you want those lower layers to start composting inside the coop. And the idea behind this is that it's a time-saving method for you. You're not cleaning as often. Um, The composting process will generate a certain amount of heat. I don't feel that it generates a noticeable amount of additional heat over winter. But that might be because there's a limit to how deep i can make the litter in certain parts of the coop at the back of my coop i have an additional vent low down to encourage air to circulate so i have vents near the top and vents at the bottom and i don't want to block that vent during winter because humidity buildup in a coop is very deadly over the winter months and um, this is like we talked about with our beehives it's very similar So that might be why I didn't notice a big generation of heat. Who knows? Um, If you're experimenting with this method, you know, let me know if you feel like you've noticed an increase in temperatures inside your coop. But anyway, so you want to basically just be putting fresh litter down on top of the dirty litter and then turning it either manually. Or what I do is I throw like some scratch in there every day and then the chickens come in, dig around in the litter and they turn it for me. Now, if you're doing it correctly... Your coop won't smell. And I actually feel that this can help control the smell of um, feces and um, ammonia in the coop. And a bonus as well is that when you remove all of the litter in the spring, which you do need to do, uh, most people recommend doing a yearly clean out of this. When you remove all the litter in the spring it's already either completely composted or mostly composted and so it makes it easy to either put it directly onto your garden beds or put it into your composting pile and it will compost faster. (laughs) So I don't know if you heard that um, thudding just now that was one of my whippets running into the room to I don't know announce their presence (laughs) so I apologize. So yes, that's um, the deep litter method. In terms of what I use for bedding, I like the pine flakes that I get from the, the feed store. Um, I also get, I also use dried leaves, and I sometimes sprinkle a little bit of hay in there. The hay is more of an issue for me I really like how it smells and it does uh, break down well so I figure why not it can help keep things fresh and it smells nice and yes I like it a lot and it has been working for me Um, I'm happy with this method so I realized when we had sort of a a mild day where it was cool enough that I didn't mind getting a little sweaty but it wasn't so cold that I was going to be miserable I went out I cleaned out everything Um, I took all the old litter out of the coop I brushed the inside of the coop down. I then put a tarp down to make it easier to clean in the future and to give a little bit additional protection for the floor of the coop. Uh, it is it is waterproofed, um, it is weather treated, but it just makes me feel a little bit more secure knowing it's there. Um, you can also find, there are products that I've seen a lot in feed stores that claim that they can increase the speed of the compost process. Um, I've experimented with one the name escapes me right now but if I find it I'll put it on the blog Um, and I don't know that it's really helped it definitely hasn't hurt anything it might not be something that I buy again but if you're doing all this right then your coop shouldn't smell the only time you should really smell anything in there is if you there's literally fresh feces the minute you open the door and it's right up front. And then obviously you'll smell a little bit. If you go in and you find that your coop is getting smelly while you're doing this, then something isn't right. And there's two main things that can cause issues when doing deep litter. And the first one is there's just too much moisture in your coop. Either this is from a humidity buildup, poor ventilation, a leak, or there's I don't know some people put waterers in their coop maybe the chickens are knocking your water over if there's a lot of moisture in there everything's just going to start rotting and rotting is different from composting and when it rots it stinks Um, and it can also generate mold and bacteria and that's where that nasty smell is coming from so if that happens clear everything out find out where the water's coming from and start again on the other side of things if you're using diatomaceous earth, particularly if you're using a lot of it into your substrate, then you might find that your coop smells. And the reason for this is that when something is composting, we need these little insects that, you know, are eating all of the, di- um, the dirt and the feces and are helping turn everything over and break it down. And diatomaceous earth kills most insects. It dries them out and they die. So I recommend don't use diatomaceous earth if you're doing deep litter. And that's actually why I only use this method in my big coop because as I've mentioned previously, I have a real issue with poultry lice on my special needs girls because they can't groom themselves. And I have to use DE liberally in their run and in their coop. So for them, I just take out, I actually spot clean their coop every day. Every morning after I feed them, I go in the coop. I take out the feces and I put fresh litter in as needed. So that's something to keep in mind. And as always, with any method, whether you are cleaning daily or you're doing deep litter, if you ever go into your coop and it smells strongly of ammonia, and that's a very distinctive smell, I think you will know it when you experience it, you should clean the whole coop out and put fresh bedding down. Um, Ammonia buildup causes severe health problems in chickens um, and it can actually kill them. And it's also not good for you either. So (laughs) keep your coops clean. Um, I actually share a link on my blog to a really good article from Fresh Eggs Daily that also has nice pictures of her coop setup and how she cleans things. And I also shared some additional pictures of um, how I do things. And you will see in one of the pictures, I am wearing a face mask. It is a washable, reusable material face mask. So it has the filters in it. You can take the filters out, wash the material, get fresh filters and put it back together. And I do this because I'm actually allergic to certain kinds of hay. And I also worry about breathing in like just the general dust from my birds and any kind of you know, debris that's building up. So I think if you're really going in there, you're doing a deep clean. Or if you're working with diatomaceous earth, if you're dusting your chickens, you want to protect your delicate respiratory system. So I do recommend picking up a face mask, either disposable or, you know, it's a little better if you get the rewashable ones because it's less waste. So you can see mine's floral and pretty. (laughs) Not that that matters, but um, I like it a lot. So I would recommend checking out a washable face mask if you can. In sad news and this is going to take a little bit of time so if you don't like to listen to things that are sad um, you might want to skip ahead a little bit until I start talking about my bees but um, for those of you who follow me on Instagram you would have seen that last week I had to have one of my chickens euthanized and I took her to the vet to do this. So what happened is that coming up two to three weeks ago now, I noticed that one of my uh, red hens, Ginger, was turning her head always to the one side to look at things and that when she was pecking at food in the dirt, she was missing a couple of times. So I scooped her up and I tested the eye in question by moving my finger very, very slowly towards the eye. And there was no response. Her pupil didn't, uh, adjust. Her, she didn't seem bothered at all that I was almost touching her eye. She was clearly unaware that there was anything happening. And I also eventually took out a flashlight and I see, I was checking to see if the pupil would react to that and it didn't. I checked the other side and that eye was responsive to both tests. So she was blind in that one eye. And, um, my next step was I, I looked her over. Were there signs of injury? There were no um, bumps. There were no cuts, no blood, nothing on her head that would indicate that she banged her head. Um, I went over her. I looked in her mouth. Her mouth was clear. Her nostrils were clear. There was no discharge from her eyes, no discharge from her nose. Um, her vent was in good shape. She was otherwise in excellent condition. So I thought that you know, maybe it was something a little obscure, like maybe there had been an infection deep in the eye that I hadn't been able to see, that had caused blindness, maybe it was some kind of congenital condition, or maybe something really bad, like a brain tumour, which I would have no way of diagnosing without some kind of imaging. So, I kind of went to the books and I went to trusty old Google and everything was basically like, you know, a hen that's blind in one eye, as long as they're getting enough food and drink, they're fine. So I thought, okay, I'll keep a close eye on her. I'll keep an eye on the other girls. I'll see if she develops any symptoms and I'll see if any of the other girls seem to go blind. Well, things were going well, but after about a week, I realized that she'd gone completely blind. Um... It was very apparent one day when I came in and she was walking very oddly. She had very careful, exaggerated, high steps as she was moving. And it became clear that she was using sound to find where the other hens were and therefore where the food was. So I picked her up again. I tested both eyes with the flashlight and I got no response from either pupil. So a blind chicken... Is quite different to one who has some vision. Um, the biggest issue is can they find the food and can they find the water? Well, she seemed to know the layout of her run and the coop quite well. She was still eating, but I was worried about her, you know, suffering over time, starving, things like that. So I considered having her euthanize and I actually called my vet for an appointment to discuss it, but I wasn't able to go in and see them. And I was recommended to call back the following week um, to see if they'd had any availability then. And I was actually grateful the following day to this phone call because she actually seemed to be doing great. She was out of the coop. She was at the food. um, She was clearly hydrated. The other girls weren't picking on her at all, which was a huge worry for me because they had been vicious to Agatha when she started to struggle with moving around. I mean, I... I really believe they would have killed Agatha if I hadn't removed her when I did. So I was pleased. I thought, well, maybe this is going to work. Maybe she's blind and she'll always need me to just be on top of her to make sure she's getting enough food. But maybe this will be okay. Well, sadly, last Wednesday morning, I went out to my girls and they ran out to meet me in the run. But one chicken was missing and it was Ginger. And I looked in the coop and she was at the very back, hunched in a corner. And there's something about a sick chicken. You immediately can see it in how they hold themselves. So I went into the coop and I scooped that little thing up and her head was, she kept on holding it at an odd angle. She was very quiet. She didn't make any sound at all. When I scooped her up, I put her down on the ground briefly to see how she would move and she had no way of balancing she was all over the place so I thought you know obviously something is severely wrong and there were no other symptoms still Um, in all this time since I noticed the um, lateral blindness there was still no discharge no other symptoms she was eating and drinking normally there was no weight loss that I could feel I was picking her up every couple of days she was still in good condition she was actually going through her feather mold like normal and so when I found her in this shape it it really made me wonder if maybe she did have a brain tumor um you know if it was growing rapidly it would be putting more pressure inside her skull cavity and then that could definitely be pressing on nerves and causing blindness and then eventually obviously that could cause damage to things like ability to balance ability to swallow all kinds of things so what I needed to do right then. And what I did do is I picked her up and I brought her inside. Um, it was a cool day. The wind was pretty bitter. I didn't want her to be in the cold. I wanted her somewhere warm and safe. So where I usually set up my girls when they're sick is in my downstairs bathroom. It stays very, very warm in there. And I set up a small dog crate, which I lined with newspapers and then some soft towels for her to nest in. And, um, I put her inside and, um, She really was having a hard time standing. She kept on sitting back very oddly onto her, I guess you could call them her knees, her hocks. It was not a natural position for a chicken. It looked like she didn't have any control of where her legs were. And if she accidentally like twisted her toes or curled them under, she seemed completely unaware of this and would just sit on them. So my first thought was like optimistically, you know, maybe she was dehydrated or hyperglycemic. Maybe she hadn't been getting enough food and water like I thought that she was. So before I took her into the vet, I decided that I would mix up uh, three different solutions. I made an electrolyte solution, a mineral vitamin solution, and then I also made a honey solution. And over the course of the day, I would syringe feed her, drop by drop, a little bit of each. So I started with the electrolytes. I then gave her some of the mineral and vitamin, and then a bit later on, I started giving her the, uh, the honey solution. And I also, in her little crate, she had access to fresh water and access to a soft food that was easy to eat, but she didn't seem to be aware of them. Um, no matter how much I tried to make it clear where they were, she she just didn't seem to know they were there. And, and she also had a hard time, as I mentioned earlier, keeping her head straight. It kept turning like towards her side and then over her back, and then it would kind of come back around and then turn again. She was shaking occasionally. I mean, things weren't good, and um, sadly, there was no improvement whatsoever in her condition over the course of the day. And so by the afternoon, I called my vet and I arranged to have her humanely euthanized the following day, which was a Thursday. And I did, before I called my vet, I did consider euthanizing her myself at home. But the problem for me is that the only method that I could find as a humane means of euthanasia for a chicken at home was cervical dislocation, i.e. breaking their neck. And how you do this is you hold the chicken behind the head, you hold their feet, and you basically stretch the bird and gently pull the head back until you hear and feel the head separate from the spinal cord. And I'm going to be completely honest, I just can't. That's just too physical for me. The idea of it made me feel genuinely nauseated. I have a weird issue with certain body sounds, like food chewing anyway, and any kind of unnatural bone cracking, like when people crack their knuckles or anything like that, it it makes me feel like I'm going to throw up. And so I just, I knew I couldn't do it. And when I was reading about this method in my trustee, the chicken health handbook which I have talked about before they also cautioned that in older hens it can be much more difficult to break their neck and you have to be careful not to use too much force because if you do you can actually just pop their head clean off their body and this is just not me I I can't do this. Now if I had access to some kind of medication that I could give her by injection or oral syringe at home that would humanely kill her I could definitely do that but this kind of physical means of death is, is not for me so I decided that I would take her to the vet and I would just pay someone to let her go peacefully so Thursday morning my avian vet who is awesome um saw me and saw Ginger and he didn't even really do an exam I told him what I had seen and my assessment and what my decision was and he basically agreed with me right off the bat he knows that I'm pretty straightforward so he didn't feel the need to double check my diagnosis he agreed that the kindest thing to do would be to let her go we did discuss the fact that I lost a chicken about five weeks ago if you remember my girl Big Red she died of some kind of impaction in her crop of which I didn't really get to the bottom of I assumed based on some of the thickening of the wall of her crop that it was caused originally by an infection but I didn't do any blood tests or anything to confirm that and we talked a little bit about whether the two issues could be related and he agreed with me that it it was unlikely for it to be the same cause but he did caution me that if any of my other girls go downhill within the next week or two that I should bring her in and we should do blood work because there's always that chance that there's some kind of virus or severe disease that is moving through my flock and we would want to get in front of that so I do completely agree with him and I'm being very watchful of my girls. So I'm there in the vet's office and my vet comes in and he's uh, the vet that I see for my chickens is is a younger guy. He's about my age. Um, I'm in my uh, early 30s. And he was so gentle with me. You know, Like he comes in the door and he has that gentle demeanor. You know, he's all like, I'm so sorry. Like, tell me what's going on. You know, explain to me, okay, that sounds right. And I was just really straightforward. You know, I was just, nope, I understand what's going on. I I know she needs to go. I considered doing it myself, but I don't have the stomach for it. You know, I we should just do this so she doesn't have to suffer. So then he's like, oh, okay this woman is handling things okay. So he got a little bit more clinical with me and we discussed the process. And how you euthanize a bird, or at least how my vet does it, is a little bit different to how you would euthanize like a mammal. And the reason for this is that um, birds have, or usually have, a great deal of residual movement after brain death. And I'm sure you're familiar with that expression running around like a chicken with its head cut off and that's based on real life. Uh, Chickens in particular are kind of famous for this. They can move around a lot. There can be a great deal of flapping, running, kicking, spasming. It can be quite unpleasant and because of this what he likes to do is when you are in the exam room with your chicken he will give a sedative until the chicken is either asleep or just extremely relaxed. Then he'll take your chicken into the back room. They give a small amount of anesthetic gas. This is to make sure the bird lies still because it can be a little difficult to find the vein that they need to give the final injection, which is what stops their heart. And um, I was doing really well all through this. I was still straightforward. I was still business Gemma. I was fine. But then my vet said something to me like, It was something like, so I'll give the sedative and then I'll hand her back to you. So she's cuddled by mummy as she falls asleep. And it just hit me in the feels, so to speak. And I could feel myself tearing up. And at that point, my vet left the room. So he left this, you know, confident, no-nonsense woman alone in the room for about a minute. And then he came back and I've just got tears pouring down my face and I'm, I'm useless. And then he took ginger out of my arms to give her the shot, and I'm just holding back sobs at this point he I brought a blanket that we had you know wrapped her a little in, and he you know gives her back to me in the blanket and he settles her in my arms and on my lap and then at this point, I'm kind of quietly hiccup sobbing, <laughs> and tears are just pouring down my face and i'm not I'm not handling it the way that I thought I would um And so he tells me, you know, oh, we'll have the receptionist come in and take your payment here so you don't have to stand out by the waiting room and, you know, you can have your privacy and everything. And he's like, I'll give you some time and I'll come back in and take her for the final step. And um, I was all like, you know, I I was just nodding my head because I could barely speak. And when the receptionist came in, I was gutted because I opened my mouth to say something and I like hiccup sobbed really loudly. (laughs) And I'm still cringing thinking about that. But, um, oh, well, it is what it is, right? We all grieve in our own way. So I, I pay my bill in the back room and I, and I do appreciate that. It was nice not to have to stand out by the front with my, you know, red blotchy face. I don't understand people who look normal when they cry. Like, I, I'm such an ugly crier, you know, like I'm, I'm pale and then I go like red and blotchy in my tears like cause my eyes to swell and I'm snotty and I'm just I'm just a fucking mess so anyway I'm in the room I've got this chicken in my lap the receptionist leaves I've paid like 70 bucks for this whole thing which is so much more than I ever paid for like my whole flock of chickens and I thought I was being practical and I'm starting to realize that I'm not practical at all And the hardest thing about some of this is that the truth is that this kind of emotional response actually took me by surprise. And the reason why is that you know, I've mentioned before that my big flock is, is wild. Um, they were raised in a hundred plus chicken free ranging flock with very minimal handling. So they see people as a source of food, but that's it. They don't want to be picked up. They don't want to be cuddled. Um, I have been improving that a little bit. I, I've mentioned before that I'm working on getting them used to being scooped up so I can assess their, their kind of body weight um, because a lot can be hidden under those feathers. But there's three that are absolute nightmare to catch and I actually one of them I never catch that's um my white leghorn cracker and I'm not too worried about this because the leghorn it's a very slender breed and the feathers are very close so I feel like if I can't pick her up I can kind of see more easily with her when she's losing weight but it is something that I'm working on with like hand feeding and trying to get them used to my presence um but I'm kind of all right with the flock being a little standoffish because I mean, a big part of chickens for me is, is the enjoyment comes in like watching them and in the levels of care and preparing the food. Like I am a caretaker. I I lean towards things that require a certain level of care. It's why I have the special needs girls it's why I pick turtles off the road. It's why I've driven over an hour to a wildlife rehab center with a goose that got hit by a car. It's like, I, I feel very strongly about animals in need and I get suckered in. Um, You know, so it's fine for me that I put a lot of care into these birds and we don't cuddle. That's fine. Um, But Ginger has always been one of those hens in that group who is much more interested in people. Um, She's never really been hard to catch. She will tolerate cuddling for short periods of time. And she loves to be next to you if you have food. She's always been curious about what I'm doing. So if I'm in the run, she'll follow me around. If I'm in the coop, she'll be one of the first birds in there to be like, well, what are you doing? Do you have food? Uh, She also had a habit, which is really what made her stand out compared to the others, is that she would peck any part of me she could reach. My boots, my legs, my hands, my butt, absolutely anything. To the point where I often joked that she really believed I was made of food. And it's something that I found endearing and annoying and occasionally painful in equal measures. But despite, you know, having a little bit more of a connection with her, I didn't think I was especially attached until that moment in the vet's office where, you know, it really hit me that it was, it was my decision to let her go and that I wanted to do it as responsibly as possible. And as much as I believed that I had emotional distance, I didn't. And once again, it was proven that I am a huge marshmallow person. So I'm sitting there with this little hen in my arms. I'm crying and I'm somehow surprised by my own vulnerability. And like most chickens, she's a stubborn little thing. So she was kind of fighting the sedative, not in an upsetting way, but more like, you know, if you have like any kind of baby like a human baby or a puppy or a kitten and they're really really tired and their little heads are drooping but then they kind of jerk up every now and then like no no I'll i stay awake a little longer just just you know five more minutes and then their eyes close and they fall asleep for a second and then up they're awake again she was kind of doing that so her head would kind of droop and then she'd jerk her head up and she'd make a little like Bop, chicken sound and at one point I think when the sedative really kicked in she started to make this really sweet little purring noise and if you've ever gone out to your coop at night when your chickens are deeply asleep, um, chickens can actually go into kind of a stupor when they sleep, then you're probably familiar with this sound. It's very soft, it's very sweet, it's a little bit like a noise um and it has this kind of sleepy edge to it i I love it it's one of my favorite sounds and for some reason hearing her make that sound it kind of made me laugh a little bit through my tears and that helped me get a bit more of a grip on myself thank god because like i said i was a mess um i think we were probably together for about 25 minutes before the vet came to take ginger into the back as he picked her up, she woke up and I said to him, you know, she's a bit of a fighter, but she is relaxed. And he was like, okay, you know, I'll be gentle with her. And, and he took her back to, um, to euthanize her. And I kept it together. Like at this point, I wasn't crying. And I could feel the tears back there, but I had stopped crying. I wiped my face, blown my nose. I was ready. And I kept it together when I was waiting. I kept it together when they brought her back in a wrapped blanket that they placed in the cat carrier that I used to transport chickens. And I even held it together when the very sweet vet tech was so sincere and warm in her condolences. You know, no one there ever treats me like a crazy lady for putting so much just time and love and money into chickens, which, I mean, honestly, I paid like what? five bucks for each bird if that so you know they they never see them as a a low value item they understand that they're high value to me and I appreciate that so I was I was keeping it together I had her body in the carrier I was heading outside I tried to say thank you to the receptionist and that's where I started to lose it again so I got in the car and I just burst into floods of tears and I pretty much cried all the way home and I think part of why it was so hard for me is that when I lost Babette, who was my extremely precious little rescue hen who got me started in chicken keeping and who I talked about in my first episode, she died at the vet's after surgery. So I never got to be with her. I never got to share that moment with her and, and see her pass and give her that comfort in her final moments. Um, and losing her was really difficult. Um, she was extremely special to me and she was my pet before anything else. She wasn't an animal who produced food for me. She wasn't livestock. She was my beloved pet. And so not only did I, you know, pay quite a lot of money to have her go through surgery for an impacted egg and a prolapsed rectum but I also then had her cremated um, individually so that I could have her ashes and just her ashes returned to me and I have her urn up on my mantle Um, and at the time the crematorium that my vet was using they put all of the ashes into these tins with paw prints on so it's something that I have sort of planned I'm going to get like a much nicer box for her maybe a wooden box that I can like burn a, a chicken emblem on or something in the meantime I bought this adorable little clay heart that's made to look like a chicken for her um, because she was so important to me and uh, she's up on the mantle with the urns of my other beloved pets. and for me there's no difference but was one of my babies and I think being there with Ginger made me think about how I hadn't been there, why well, I couldn't be there for Babette. And then this made me think a lot about, again, because I, I dwell over this a lot, you know, what when you get chickens, you kind of figure out early on, are they pets or are they livestock or are they somewhere in between? And many people have absolutely no problem killing a chicken with their bare hands, either culling a chicken due to illness or for harvesting them as food. They absolutely would not take a single chicken to the vet unless they needed blood tests for overall flock health. And they definitely wouldn't pay to have them cremated or to have surgery or anything like that. And that's totally fine. Chickens are livestock. We decide what place they have. And I'm okay with that. I eat meat. I am an omnivore. I see a huge difference between laying hens and meat birds. I think I've mentioned before, meat birds, Rarely live um, over a year old because we've bred them to get so big so fast that they actually die of heart attacks. So for me, I'm like, you need to cull them for food when they're young so they don't suffer the pain of a heart attack and dying somewhere alone. And although I mean, there's an argument there, isn't there? Should we have bred them to be that big? And that's a whole other thing um, that maybe I'll tackle one day about ethics of farming but that's just a big issue and that's way over my head right now but I do believe generally in ethical farming practices and that can include culling your own hens and if any of you out there are like these kind of practical homesteaders you've probably listened to this whole thing and thought this woman's nuts you might also have thought like gosh it must be nice to have the money to spend on that and that's true and I feel tremendously grateful and blessed to be able to have these chickens and to be able to treat them like pets and also to rescue my special needs girls and put work and time and finances into their health like I'm just I'm a spoiled lady and I try and work hard to show appreciation for my blessings and I think if you are one of those crazy chicken ladies like me these birds are your pets they're your babies that's okay as well you know don't feel ashamed or defensive if you're on either side of that line you have the right to grow your own food. And that can include raising livestock. And you also have the right, if you have the means and the time and the emotional capacity, then yeah, they can be your babies. I follow some adorable Instagram accounts where people post like whole imagined conversations that they have with their chickens. There's one lady who knits like these adorable little hats for her chickens. You know, it's, that's fine. Like you do you. Um, I think All of us who work with chickens are fortunate to do so and um, I'm just grateful that I get to do this even if sometimes it is painful. Um, And also I mean here I am I'm drawn to chickens and bees and reptiles I mean and dogs but setting the mammals aside for a minute. Chickens, reptiles and bees they're all fascinating but occasionally incredibly delicate creatures who can be okay in one minute and gone the next. And that's part of the blessing. and It's part of the curse. And you just take it as you can. So on that Thursday, I had Ginger euthanized. I brought her home and I ended up leaving her in the garage overnight. Um, I didn't have it in me to bury her that day. It was going to be a cool evening and I wasn't going to do a necropsy. Um, Opening up, the body cavity I don't believe would have shown me what I needed to see and I couldn't crack open her skull because again the idea of the feel and the sound of that bone breaking made me feel like I was gonna throw up everything in my stomach so I just left it and I do wonder is it is it weird that I can do home necropsies but not home culling is my self-consciousness about this obvious I I don't know um The next day, I I had chosen a spot for her. I wanted to bury her. I have a lilac bush that's a little overshadowed by firs. It's on my list of things that I want to deal with next season so it can get more sun. But it's a beautiful spot, and I was thinking I'd bury her there. But I actually found that the ground was very, very thick with roots from only like an inch or two down, and I didn't want to chop through those roots and risk damaging either the lilac bush or the fir trees. So I found a soft space behind the leaf um, and compost pile by the coops. It was far enough away from both coops that it would hopefully avoid attracting a predator but it also had a view of the run in the coop that she'd lived in for the past year which I thought was appropriate. Um, after I buried her I did pile rocks on top to deter digging by wildlife or my neighbor's dog who comes around because she can't be bothered to uh, keep that dog under control and um, I knew I hadn't dug really deep because I have a a chronic lower back issue and digging causes a flare so I went as far as I could and then piled things on top and then it was all done. So I know that's kind of a bummer and I really apologize and um, I don't blame you if you ended up skipping ahead and you're just catching this at the end. Um, I will be honest that the change of season is probably making me dwell a little bit on it. I, I do love fall. It's one of my favorite seasons. I love the crisp mornings and the evenings. I like the extra opportunities to take my dogs on long walks and all the comfort food that is so good at this time of year. Um, but I am affected by the de- decreased hours of sunlight. Um, just as my hens will slow down their laying, which they have done, um, I struggle with my moods. Um, I've actually suffered with chronic depression basically my whole life. Um, I am medicated. I am in treatment. I probably will be medicated for the rest of my days. And, um, last winter I had a really, really bad bout of depression that we eventually figured out was due to seasonal affective disorder. Hooray. Um, and, um, I struggled really hard, but I did find some things that started to help. And um, if anyone's curious or if anyone's in the same boat, I had success using a light therapy lamp twice a day over winter for 30 minutes, twice a day, once first thing in the morning over breakfast and once sort of midday. Um, I also take three to six milligrams of melatonin before bed and I very much recommend picking up a hobby that requires intense concentration like knitting or crochet or what I did was cross stitching and I actually have a number of uh, cross stitch kits that I've had set aside to get me through this coming winter and also get physical find something that you enjoy doing as a workout whether it's walking or running or going to the gym and lifting weights. For me, it is swimming. Um, Swimming for me is great physically because it doesn't cause my lower back to hurt. It actually seems to help with my lower back pain and it makes my brain just totally zen out. So if anyone's suffering with seasonal affective disorder, those are things that I found to help. But my point is that it's possible that the change in season is making me dwell on the sadness. <laughs> but I promise I have positive things to share with you. It is not all doom and gloom. Uh, cooler weather means putting my dogs in their pyjamas, which are adorable. And you can check out my private Instagram at pretty kitty to see pictures of my dogs in many different pyjamas looking precious. Um, I always said I wouldn't be someone who dressed their dogs, but... W- I have sight hounds. They're so skinny and they have almost no fat and almost no fur and they need the extra coverage. So it's a great excuse for me to put them in beautiful little jammies and coats and all kinds of cuteness. Um, I've also been swimming regularly, which is great for me. It tires me out, but it does mean that I don't have the energy to take them on long hikes, which I'd really like to do. Um, I have got out a couple of times with them and it was great for all of us. Um, They get so much more energy at this time of year. And it's really good for us to go out and stretch our legs, get away from the property. And um, they get to smell new things and experience new things. And it's just great. And they sleep so well afterwards. And excellent um, in terms of behavior. Luna, my female Whippet, who is four, she's my youngest. And she's particularly naughty when she's bored, like a lot of dogs. So a tired Luna, Is a good lunar and um, my goal is definitely to take them out more as the weather allows it this season. Um, That should get easier soon. I have been Uh, October is one of my months where I volunteer at my local zoo the Akron Zoo and we have a big event over the Halloween month called Boo at the Zoo and we have booths and the kids come to these booths and they get treats and candy and it's like a safe trick or treating experience at the zoo and it's one of our biggest events and um, I'm there every Saturday and every Sunday for four to five hours on my feet the whole time, running up and down that big hill at the zoo, um, helping out. And I love it. I love being outside. It's one of the best events, in my opinion. I love seeing the families and the children. And I love being on my feet and getting to help in a way that works for me. But it's very, very tiring. And it takes up a lot of time. And um, I miss out on some things when I'm doing it, like going on long hikes with my dogs and seeing my husband. So once uh this past weekend is done we are done for the season with Boo who will be on to the next event and I have more weekends back so that's going to be really nice um as we got our first frost in which happened in the past couple of weeks um and the nights have been getting colder I started to worry about my bees um so I waited until we had a warm day and the girls were busy going about their business and I did a hive inspection just to see how everyone is getting along and um I was really pleased with what happened so I this was, is probably going to end up being my last big inspection before the winter hits I do plan on taking opportunities to go in there as I can on the warm days but This was my time to really assess everything and take out the the mite treatment that I had in and check their food levels and do everything I talked about in my last episode when preparing for winter. So, looking at my handy dandy bee journal, I can see that I did my last inspection on Friday, October 11th. It was a warm day with a light breeze in the low to mid 70s. And this is something that I track. I do recommend tracking the um, time of day the temperature, the breeze, um, things like that, it can give. It can be beneficial looking back. And this was um, just after noon, so between 12 and one. And I'm gonna break this down by hive. So in hive number one, which is Queen Caredwin, I removed the Apivar strips, I found the queen and I noted appropriate brood present. Everything looked help, uh, healthy. I did a mite check and I had um, an, <laughs> a zero result, which doesn't mean that there are no mites, but it does mean that it's an undetectable level. And this is excellent because the mite check before treatment gave me a five out of 300 reads. So I'm very, very pleased with that. Um, A little fun aside is that one thing that I do is I find the queen on a frame and I set that frame aside in an empty super on a solid bottom. And then I will usually cover that super and this is so that I don't accidentally kill the queen when doing the mite check and also so that the queen feels secure on that frame because uh, the queen is used to darkness if she's suddenly exposed to the sunlight she's going to try and get you know back to somewhere dark so I did that did my mite check you know got everything sorted and I went to get that frame and put it back in the hive and I looked at it and the queen's not on that frame so i <laughs> I immediately panic and I'm like, okay, where, where the hell is she? And I had another frame in there with her. So I'm like, oh, she probably hopped to that other frame. And I look at that frame and she's not on there either. And there's a ton of bees building on this super. So I look to where there's the biggest clump in the corner. And there she is just wandering around the edges of the super like she's got nothing better to do. So I'm very gently trying to encourage her back on the frame and she's not having it. And I don't have the confidence to pick her up because I'm terrified I'm going to smush her. So I ended up like picking the whole super up, tilting it over the inner cover of the hive and then kind of gently shooing her down towards that that inner cover hole and only when I saw her disappear down there and all the girls started pouring in after her did I take a big sigh of relief and was like okay thank goodness but it's definitely a good reminder that queens don't always stay where you put them do check the sides of your supers and inner covers for them when looking for them because they do what they want so thanks for the heart attack queen keredwin (laughs) i don't appreciate it um this hive also ended up hurting my back they have a honey super on that is Pack full It, it was almost fully capped when I went in there it was so heavy um like I mentioned I have a chronic lower back issue and when I was trying to move this honey super I tweaked my back and I ended up being in pain for about 48 hours it was not fun I have heard it said that if you don't have a back issue when you start beekeeping you will by the by the end of it um I do think that the hive stand that I have this hive on is a little bit too high for me. So one of the things that I will be doing in the spring is I'm going to drop this hive down, uh, the hive stand down just a little bit. I mean, literally just a couple of inches, but it will make a big difference for me. And I'm also going to be looking into top bar hives because I've heard that they're great for people with mobility issues. So we'll, we'll see. But I will take the pain because feeling that heavy box of honey is wonderful that's what I want I want them to have good stores I have been feeding them and I continue to feed them and I'm optimistic about their chances of getting through winter barring you know anything out of my control so for hive number two which is queen marker who is my smallest and weakest hive that I've been concerned about I removed the apivar treatment strips I found the queen in the brood and the mite check was three out of 300 which is very good But what's interesting is it's technically up from August when I got a read of two out of 300. Now, I'm not concerned about this because it was late July um, when we were in the deep heat of summer that Queen Marker stopped laying eggs, which caused me a great deal of anxiety. And she really actually started ramping up her brood production around the time... um, around sort of August into September. And more brood means more chances for mites to breed. So it's not actually that surprising to see that there's a very slight increase in mites. Also, because her hive is so much smaller, the apivar treatment works by the bees walking over the strip and then they take little bits of the treatment with them as they walk through the hive and through the brood area. And because she just had less of a population, those, those strips weren't getting walked on as much. So it's possible they didn't get as complete a treatment as a busier hive would have done. So I'm not worried is, is the key point. Um, I am very pleased to see that there's been a sharp increase in food storage on this hive um, because it's so small and I really want it to have enough to get through winter. I have been feeding them. I'm going to continue feeding them. And during this inspection, I made a note that. I needed to come back with a solid bottom board for this hive as it's the only one I have that has a screen that can't be closed off. And actually, um, it was, I think, this past Monday that I went and I got that bottom board put into place. So they're all squared away. For hive number three, which is Queen Morrigan, I removed the apivar. I found the queen and the brood, I did a mite check, and it was four, maybe five. There was something that could have been a mite or a piece of debris, I'm not 100% on. Let's go with four out of 300. And I have mixed feelings about this. Um, the previous mite count was the highest of all my hives, it was eight out of 300. So if it's four out of 300 now, that is. half gone and that is a good reduction but I really really wanted to see them more in the two or three range Um, this is a very large colony it's always been large the queen has been incredible in her egg production Um, and so you know eggs equal brood brood equals mites so I I am a little worried but um, this is within the threshold uh, I'm probably just being paranoid because I'm a new bee- beekeeper. I will say that you know this is my biggest hive. It has so much honey. Um, if I was going to do a full harvest, it would have been from this hive uh, They have a a full deep for the brood box, a second deep which has I think one or two frames of brood right in the middle. all the rest is honey, and then they have a they had a honey super on top but That honey super only had two frames of honey and the rest of the frames didn't even have wax. So what I decided to do is, you know, those empty frames, they're not good insulation. That's going to allow a fair amount of heat to escape and cold air to get in. So I decided to take those two frames of honey out. I removed as many of the bees as I could. And then I put them into Queen Marca's hive as she could have used them. Um, She... It was doing well for her storage. I was pleased with the storage, but she definitely could use those two frames. So I popped them in there. Um, and then I just took that honey super off, reducing the hive down to the two deeps. And um, I think I think that should be okay. I, I hadn't been feeding this hive because they had such good stores and um, they're such hard workers. But I did take an opportunity recently and I put one small feeder on for them. So while I'm doing this inspection... Um, there were definitely signs of potential robbing going on. Um, There were a fair few yellow jackets and other wasp species, which I did my best to squish whenever I could. Uh, The bees were also drifting from hive to hive because they could smell the stores, the honey stores. Um, I did my best to cover any frames that I had to remove and to not leave the hives open for too long. But I'm not the fastest at inspections yet because it is new to me and because of my back sometimes I move slower than I would like to. Um, I also one thing I do is if they have food on them like if I have a feeder on them when I take the feeder off I put it away from the hives while I'm doing my work so that I don't attract more pests into the area. Uh, before I left I put mouse guards on the hive because Uh, the nights are colder I want to deter any rodents from checking out the hives and also because um, they work as an entrance reducer so they can help reduce robbing behavior Um, and uh, I have a picture of those on the blog and I'll post one on the Instagram. Um, I also mentioned in my last episode about uh, winter prep and how I had to go shopping so I got that As you can tell, I got my mouse guards in. I also drove out to Ravenna um, to Blue Sky Bee Supply, which is my closest local bee supply shop. And I picked up some bee cozy wraps, which I referenced in my last episode, which will go over the hives. Um, I don't need to wrap them yet, but I wanted to have them on hand. I also started building my own Vivaldi boards using empty supers and some high up um, some hardwire cloth for the candy cage and those should be completed soon and for the shims to help raise that inner cover and help with the ventilation I have like spare wood from various projects that I'm weather treating and that will be ready to use uh, within the next week so not long after this inspection uh, it got cold and that's what we had our, our first frost in the mornings and we had temperatures in the low 40s sometimes even in the 30s at night And during the day, we had a couple of days where we barely got into the 50s. And so the hives became very, very quiet. And this was kind of creepy for me. (laughs) So I would go out there and I would just look at the entrances and there's no activity. And I would press my ear up against the hive and I could barely hear anything. And uh, one day actually when the the wind had died down, I like cracked the top to see, you know, how much uh, heavy syrup they had left. And of course, there were no bees in the top box up by the feeder because they had clustered down below around the brood and around the queen. And the hive was also very, very quiet. And when I opened the lid, I'm used to this big kind of gust of heat and scent, but there was none of that. And I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. It gave me a glimpse to what winter is going to be like. And I promptly went inside and I ordered myself the stethoscope that I talked about, which is here. And I will definitely be using over winter. Uh, it was probably about a week when we had our next like genuinely warm day. The girls were out, they were foraging. Um, I'd made additional heavy syrup and I ran out to put that on the hives. And it was great to like open up that top uh, cover and I could see the girls working. I felt that burst of warm, sweet air. I really love the smell of a busy hive. It's It's hard to describe, but it's warm. It's softly sweet. It's a little musky. It's a little bit like a wild animal. Um, There's the beeswax scent in there, a tiny bit of honey. It's just, there's nothing quite like that smell in the whole world and I just love it. So overall, I do think things are on track for winter. I I really hope that they are. Um, I have been a little indecisive about how cold is too cold at night considering how mild our days have been lately. So I reached out to a local keeper and I asked her what she goes by. And she said she waits until the days are consistently in the 40s with the nights consistently in the 30s. And that makes perfect sense to me. So I'm I'm probably going to do the same. And once I have my bees, like the beehives wrapped up in their hive cozies, I will definitely post pictures to show what that looks like. Um, I do have time to get some things done which is lovely. I've got time to cut back some of the plants. I have time to finish preparing for winter. I feel like I'm on track. As things get done I'm going to share pictures on my blog and on Instagram and I hope that you will take a look. So that's really all my news. (laughs) As you can see very long. I'm sorry if it was too long. I'm sorry that it's sad and I'm sorry for my nasal (laughs) my navel gazing. Um I hope it wasn't too dull or too depressing or too waffly. I hope you you stuck in there with me and I'm very thankful if you did. Um, If you are listening to this on on a podcast app, please check out my blog. You can find it in the episode description. If you're here listening because you came through my blog, please remember to subscribe so that you don't miss an update or an episode if you'd like to reach out to me with questions or just to chat about your experiences with bees or chickens or any other kind of livestock or gardening anything at all really you can find me at homestead hens and honey on instagram homestead hens on twitter and you are very welcome to email me at homestead hens and honey or one word at gmail.com Now for my next episode I will finally have all that information about honey that I've been learning and it's been very interesting. I've mentioned before that I got into the bees for the bees for their biology because I think they're awesome and neat and fascinating and not so much for the added bonus of delicious honey. So it was all new to me to learn about this stuff and um, I have quite a lot to share and I'm looking forward to sharing it all with you in two weeks. So until then remember hug your hands. Your <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't speak now. Let me, let me try that again. Until then, remember, hug your hands and then wash your hands. Bye-bye.